The scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 6, verses 36 to 42. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. William Tandy was blind for 70 years before he was finally able to see again. And no one is quite sure how he was able to see, but in an interview with 60 Minutes, the interviewer asked William, now that you can see, what is, what is the one thing that you thought would look differently? You know what Tandy said? Autumn leaves falling. He said that when people said that autumn leaves were falling, I always thought that the leaves fell straight to the ground, like when you drop a pair of keys. But he said, now that I can see clearly, I had no idea that every leaf has its own pilgrimage and journey as it dances and sways elegantly and softly to the ground. He said, I live in the same world as I've always lived in, but now that I can see clearly, it's like I live in this whole new world. You know what this passage is about? This passage is about being able to see clearly, primarily ourselves clearly and one another clearly. Because if there is one thing that clouds our judgment of ourselves and one another, it is a judgmental spirit. And this is the warning that we see in verse 37. In verse 37, Jesus says, do not judge and you will not be judged. Verse 37 is, I would say, the most popular verse uh, in the Bible, even more so than John 3.16, and yet perhaps it is the most misapplied. And for whatever reason, our culture tends to memorize verse 37 in the King James Version, which says, judge not, lest ye be judged. So what does Jesus mean when he says, judge not? Well, the political commentator and analyst and comedian Bill Maher once said, who are you, who are you to tell someone else how to live their life? Doesn't your own Bible say, do not judge? And of course, the irony of what Bill Maher is saying is that he is judging Christians for judging other people. But he does have a point, doesn't he? What does Jesus mean when he says, do not judge? Because the fact of the matter is, we can't help but make value-laden statements every single morning. This morning I woke up, I judged the weather. We judge what we're going to wear in our closets. We we judge the Starbucks barista and how they made our coffee and how the service was. 
when we take the train and the local train comes first, we judge whether we should take the local or wait for the express. When we get off the train, we, we're judging whether we should walk on the left side of the steps or the right side of the steps, depending on how pedestrian traffic is. We judge restaurants on Yelp. We judge movies on Rotten Tomato. We judge the people we go on dates on. We judge one another on social media. And even as I speak right now, you are judging whether what I am saying is credible or not. We cannot not judge. So what does Jesus mean when he says, do not judge? What Jesus is saying here is not that we shouldn't judge, but what he's telling us is how we should judge. In other words, there is a difference between judging people, judging one another, and being judgmental of one another. Now, what is the difference? Well, if you take a look at verse 37 again, after Jesus says, do not judge and you will not be judged, he says, do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Here, Jesus explains a little bit further what he means by saying, do not judge, and he says, do not condemn. Now, that may not help us that much because what does it mean to condemn someone? Well, I think a very simple definition of what it means to judge or condemn someone is this. When we condemn someone, we are judging them without sympathy versus judging someone with sympathy. Now, what does it look like when we judge one another with sympathy? A person who judges someone else with sympathy is paralyzed by compassion for that other person. Whereas a person who is judging without sympathy, they are not paralyzed by compassion so much as they leap to conclusions and criticisms. I was thinking about that all week and examining myself and whether I am a judgmental and critical person or not, and I am. And I thought to myself, why am I like this? Why are we so cruel to one another and so lenient with ourselves? And I think what this text is saying is that one of the reasons why we tend to see ourselves as angels and why it is so easy to demonize one another is because we have an overinflated view of ourselves. Tim Challies captures what it looks like to have an overinflated view of ourselves in the very first page of your bulletin in an article he entitled, I'm Better Than You. And this is what Challies says about each and every one of us and the way that we operate and think. <clears throat> Challies says, I'm better than you. At least, this is what I believe in most of life's situations. I'm just plain better than you. Somewhere deep inside, I believe it's true, and too often I live and act like it's true. This is the old sin of pride, I suppose, the one we talk about so often, but deal with so seldom, the one many people put at the root of all sin. And it's amazing to me how much of my sin comes down to it. I think I'm better than you. Too often, I'm just plain convinced of it. When you choose to go left, my heart judges and condemns you because I am convinced it would have been better to go right. I don't have nearly all the information you have and probably only half the wisdom. Yet in my heart, I am convinced you would have made a better decision if only you would have asked me to guide you. It's baffling. It's sin. It is pride. In Proverbs chapter 6, 
God says that there are six things that I hate. And hate is such a strong word, isn't it? But he says there are six things that I hate. You know what is number one on that list? Haughty eyes. Now, we don't really use the word haughty very much, but another way of translating the word haughty eyes, arrogant eyes, superior eyes, and disdainful eyes towards one another because we are just plain convinced that we are better than the next person next to us. And I think this is one of the joys of watching reality television because when we are watching people on TV and the train wreck that is their lives, it secretly makes us feel better about ourselves, doesn't it? Because at least I am not as bad as them. At least my story is not as messy as their story. And so it's an opportunity for us to shift the glaring spotlight that is glowing on us. And it's an opportunity to shift it away from ourselves to that person. And we think subconsciously that if we're able to expose that other person's sins, it'll secretly, subconsciously absolve us of our own. What Chalice is saying, what this text is saying, is that the reason why we are so judgmental toward one another is because we have an overinflated view of ourselves. We have a superior attitude toward uh, one another. And that happens when we judge one another without sympathy. So the question is this, why can't we judge this way? If you take a look at verses 41 to 42, this is what it says. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, we're all urbanites here, so when we hear the word plank, we have no idea what it means. But a plank is like a log that can go up to 40 feet long, if not longer. And here, the logic that Jesus is using is this. How can you fixate and criticize a speck of sawdust in another person's eyes when you have a giant sequoia protruding out of your own? How can you do that? It's illogical. When someone has just a small speck of dust in their eyes, yet you have a giant sequoia coming out of yours, it is hypocrisy. Which is why the theologian John Calvin once said that hypocrisy, hypocrisy is the most harmful infection because it causes us to be blind so that we cannot see. What that means is that your biggest issue and my biggest issue is that we think we have no issues when all of us do. Every one of us in this room has issues, which is why we tend to, what we tend to do is that when we're judging one another, we have no problem casting that person in a terrible light because we think we have no issues. But when we're casting people in a bad light, that is precisely what it is, lacking in light. And so here the logic that Jesus is using is that we have a giant sequoia protruding out of our own eye. So here is some light that will help, helpfully, hopefully help us have clearer vision of ourselves and one another. If I can turn your attention to uh, the first page again uh, at the third quote. 
Hanley Moulet says, the harlot, the liar, the murderer are short of the glory of God, but so are you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a mine and you on the crest of an alp, but you are as little able to touch the stars in the skies as they are. And what Moulet is saying is that at the foot of the cross, none of us stands on moral ground, higher moral ground, but there is a level playing field. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, um, a long time ago, he gave this illustration. If you've been at Exilic, you've heard this before. But he says, imagine everyone that is born into this world is born with an invisible, weightless tape recorder around their necks. And the reason why this tape recorder is very special is not only because it's invisible and weightless, but this tape recorder only records moral judgments. And so let's say we fast forward to the end of that person's life, and now they're standing in front of the pearly gates and before God, and they say, God, I had no idea you existed. I had no idea you were real. And all of a sudden, it dawns on the person the type of life that they lived. And so the person says to God, God, it's not fair for you to judge me because I didn't know that you were real. And so God says to that person, very well, I will not judge you according to my standards, but I will judge you according to your own. And unbeknownst to you, God takes off that invisible weightless tape recorder and he pushes play. And all of a sudden you hear your voice and you hear your voice criticizing that person because they're a liar. And the next thing you know, you hear your own voice stretching the truth. You hear your voice criticizing that person for being so self-centered and selfish. And then you hear your voice where you are putting your needs ahead of everyone else's. And God says to you, look, I don't need to judge you according to my own standards because you can't even live up to your own. God help each and every one of us in this room if we were ever to be judged according to our own standards. Because we cannot only not live up to God's, but we cannot live up to our own. And if that is the case, why are we so cruel to one another? Should we not be far more charitable? How can people that believe in the doctrines of grace be so ungracious to other people at times when we ourselves have received the most uh, amount of grace? So how should we judge one another then when we see another person in the wrong? Should we never say anything and be non-confrontational? I don't think that's what this passage is saying. I think what this passage is saying is something very, very different. When you see a speck of sawdust in another person's eyes, you don't go in there with scissors. You don't go in there with pliers. You don't go in there with something sharp like eyebrow tweezers. Why? Because the eye is so delicate. It's so sensitive. It's fragile. And so because the eye is so delicate and fragile, you have to go in there with something soft like Kleenex and you wipe gently that sawdust out of their eyes. And what Jesus is saying here is similarly, just like our eyes, every one of us are super sensitive. We're all very fragile. We're all very delicate. So what does that mean? We don't go in there with scissors in our engagement with one another. We don't go in there with pliers or tweezers or a bulldozer. But because we're so gentle, because we're so fragile, we go in there gently with Kleenex and wipe the sawdust gently out of someone's eyes. 
When we mishandle something that is sensitive, we have the capability of damaging that thing. And similarly with us, when we go into our conversations with people and we do, do not go in there gently, we have the capability of hurting and damaging uh, one another severely. Oscar Wilde was very famous for saying that friends don't stab you in the front, uh, friends don't stab you in the back, they stab you in the front. And what Jesus seems to be saying here is that friends don't stab at all. But friends take out a box of Kleenex and they gently, humbly, sensitively wipe the speck uh, out of the person's eyes. You know, one of the best pieces of, of advice I have ever gotten about leadership in general is that leaders lead with love. Good leaders always lead with love, which means if you don't love that person, you cannot lead them. But so oftentimes we think that the point of our engagement with people is to win the argument. And we fail to see that the point of the conversation is not to win the argument, it's to win the person. That's what it looks like to lead with love. And that is the kind of community that we want to see here. And that is the kind of relationships that I want you to have with your roommates, your coworkers, your friends, your boyfriends, your girlfriends, your spouses. Now, where can we get the perspective to be compassionate, to be paralyzed by compassion every time this type of situation arises? Because we are not interested in behavioral modification. What we are interested in is deep-seated change so that our knee-jerk reaction every time we see someone hurting is compassion and gentleness. Where can we get the power and the perspective to do this all the time? Well, it's found in the very first verse in verse 36. In verse 36, it says, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. And what Jesus is saying is because God is merciful and gracious, we similarly should be merciful and gracious to one another as well. One of my favorite stories about mercy is found in John chapter 8, where a woman is caught in the act of adultery. <laughs> and, the, and these religious leaders drag this woman out of bed, and they bring her in front of Jesus. And they say, teacher, what should we do with this woman who is caught in the act of adultery? Because the law says that we should stone her. And so one by one, these religious leaders surrounding her pick up stones in their hand like a softball that they are ready to throw into her skull. And Jesus bends down and he begins to draw something on the ground with his finger. And those, so they push him a little bit further and say, Rabbi, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law says we should stone her. What say you? And he continues to silently draw on the ground. Now, we're not sure what he was drawing on the ground, although an educated guess, some people say, is that he was writing down the sins of the people that were surrounding this woman. So John Doe, you may not have committed adultery, but you frequently, almost daily, watch pornography and masturbate. Jane Doe, you may not have committed adultery because you're single, but you do live a very sexually promiscuous life. And so some scholars believe he was writing down their sins, but what we do know is this. When Jesus is writing on the ground, he is not putting the woman on trial so much as he is putting them on trial. 
What Jesus is trying to do is to take the giant sequoia out of their own eyes first, which is why he says, he who is without sin may be the first to cast a stone. And I had never seen this before in John 8, but you know what John, John says about this event? One by one, beginning with the oldest, they drop their stones. And you can almost hear the thud of the stone falling down. One by one, beginning with the oldest. And I find that so interesting that it's the older people first that drop their stones. Because as you get older, as you get older and you experience more and more in life, you believe the words of Philo. Philo once said, be kind, for everyone you meet is carrying a heavy burden. And so one by one, they drop their stones, and eventually no one is there. And Jesus looks up, seeing that no one is there. He tells the woman, woman, has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. Now, why doesn't Jesus condemn this woman when if there was anyone in the circle that had the license to condemn her, it was him because he is sinless. But why doesn't Jesus condemn her for two reasons? Number one, no one is ever judged into change. No one is ever condemned into change. You know how people change? When they are loved. People are loved into change, which is why we should always lead with love. But there is a second reason why Jesus does not judge or condemn her. And that reason is because he would judge, be judged and condemned in her place. The judge would be judged on the cross. He would get the verdict we deserve, and we get the verdict he deserved. Now, I've been a Christian for a very, very long time. And whenever I hear like, things like that, that's kind of a cool play on words. The judge was judged, and he gets the verdict we deserve. We get the verdict he deserves. I mean, what does that really mean, though? I mean, that doesn't, like, that doesn't resonate with my heart. That doesn't move me. I, I, I guess I understand what you're saying, but what exactly does that look like? Well, let me tell you another parable that is not found in the Bible, and it's about an orphan, an orphan who was hungry and penniless. And one day, this orphan stole a car in order to sell it. But this orphan, not knowing how to drive very well, crashed his car into a tree. And so the police came and arrested him. And they brought this poor, hungry orphan in front of a judge. And the judge said to him, you have to pay the fine and the damages for this car, which, by the way, happens to be mine. But here's the second thing. If you are not able to do it, you must go to prison for the rest of your life. But seeing that the orphan boy was hungry and penniless and could never pay this debt off, the judge stepped down from the, his bench and he said to the boy, but there is one, one other option. My son, my one and only son, will pay your fine out of his own pocket under two conditions. Number one, you must plead guilty to all that you have done wrong. All of it, no exceptions. And number two, you must allow me to adopt you so that I will be your father and my son will be your elder brother. That is a picture of the gospel where Jesus pays our debt in our place, not with money, 
but with the cost of his own life so that we can be free. But all you have to do, which is so hard for us, is simply plead guilty for all that you have done. And you must allow him to adopt you as your own. You know, the beauty of this story is that even though, that, even though this orphan boy was poor, he was rich in something, wasn't he? He was rich in mercy. And that is similarly with all of us, which is why God's mercies are new every morning, which not only says that we need it every morning, but that we are rich in his mercies every morning. And if we are rich in God's mercies every morning, who are you to refuse mercy to somebody else? If we are rich in grace, how can we be so ungracious to one another? You can't. So let me quantify it for us. Imagine someone stole $50 from you. You might be a little bit upset, but let's say you had $50,000 in your savings account. Because you're kind of rich, you probably get over it. It's just 50 bucks. It hurts a little bit, but it's not a big deal. Now let's imagine that you don't have $50,000 in your savings account, but you have 50 million dollars in your savings account. You might still be a little bit irked because principally it's wrong what they did, but because you're so rich, it'd be pretty easy to let this go and to forgive it because the richer you are, the easier it is to forgive. Do you not know how rich in mercy and grace you are because of what Jesus has done for you? So who are you to withhold mercy from other people? Who are you to condemn when you are not condemned yourself? We cannot. We must be people that are rich in mercy towards one another. And the more you meditate and think about that, the more you will be paralyzed by compassion to each other. But there is a second practical way where we can be more compassionate to one another, and that is by simply being vulnerable. Open books tend to be less judgmental than people that are closed books. So one way of combating a judgmental spirit is with a spirit of humility and openness. And I think a good display of that was this past Easter service when Anna shared her story. Now, Anna became a Christian a little over one month ago. I have been a Christian for nearly 30 years. But on Easter Sunday, Anna was my teacher and I was a student. Because when Anna shared her story transparently, and vulnerably and courageously, with all the warts and all, I saw someone that was truly free. And I envy that so much sometimes. Someone that is able to share all of their warts that freely, that liberally. And so some, some of the uh, responses after her story were things like, I can't believe she just shared all that. It's crazy, it was so personal and so private. But here is something that Anna knows that most of us don't. Anna has, first of all, a very low opinion of your opinion of her. Secondly, she has a very low opinion of her own opinion of herself. Because thirdly, the only thing that matters to her now as a Christian is what God thinks about her and God's opinion of her. Martin Luther once said, when he is tempted by the devil and the devil says to him, you're a loser, you're a nobody, look at what you did yesterday, look at what you did to your roommates, look at what you did to your spouse, and he says, you're a nobody, Luther said, you know what he would say to the devil? You're right. You're right. But you don't even know the half of it. I am a great sinner. 
but I also serve a merciful Savior. The more that sinks deep into your heart, the more you understand that you are a great sinner and God is a great Savior, you are on the path to finally seeing clearly. And once you can see clearly, then you will be a good roommate. Then you will be a good boyfriend or girlfriend. Then you will be a good spouse. Then you will be a good friend. Words have the power to kill and give life. And so it is my prayer that we would use our words to build one another up rather than tear one another down because we are not judged or condemned, but in God we find grace and mercy. Let's pray together. Father, would you forgive us for being so judgmental? And so it is our prayer this morning that you would give us clear eyes and full hearts so that we can look at one another and ourselves with compassion, gentleness, and love. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.